Well, today as we start off this new year, we're also uh, starting off a new sermon series that's going to take us through Palm Sunday, and I have called this series, By Faith, a series on taking God-inspired risks. And in this series, we'll largely be considering the lives of uh, biblical figures that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which is a chapter that is often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, a few people that we'll look at aren't listed in Hebrews 11, but most of them are. And in most of the cases, what we're going to do is we're going to see the person mentioned in Hebrews 11, and then we're going to go back into the Old Testament and learn a little bit more about their lives uh, by reading about uh, what they did in uh, the Old Testament. I don't know about you for certain, but my guess is I, I would feel fairly confident in guessing that many of you are similar to me in that you're not a big fan of taking risks. Several years ago, uh, a man by the name of John Eldridge had a wildly popular uh, book. It was extremely popular with Christian men, and it was titled Wild at Heart. And while later in the book I finally started tracking with Mr. Eldridge as he talked about men's desire for uh, career advancement and for accomplishment, but in the early part of the book I had great difficulty tracking with him because he spent so much of that book talking about how men are wired to enjoy things like mountain climbing and uh, skydiving and excursions in the wilderness, hunting bear, and... Uh, and so as I was reading the book, I was thinking, what in the heck is he talking about? I don't like any of those things. I was starting to, to question my, my manhood. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> I don't like any of this stuff. Is this really what uh, all men like? And uh, the reason that I don't like any of those things is because they all involve risk. Every single one of those things, and almost everything Eldridge talked about in his book, involved risk. And I don't like risk. In fact, I expend a significant amount of energy and effort trying to minimize risk. Now, it's a little inconsistent. Sometimes my wife says I'm not like this, but, but one of the ways that I generally try to minimize risk is by driving like a little old lady. That's, that's one of the ways that I minimize risk. My kids are well acquainted with hand sanitizer, and that's to minimize risk. Uh, when I was uh, young and in school, I would virtually never volunteer to answer a question in class. And if I was asked to answer against my wishes, I would practically hyperventilate. And the reason was is because I could not hardly handle the risk of being wrong. Once I find an insurance provider or a car mechanic that I like and I trust... I almost will never change because changing involves some level of risk. But Mr. Bird, you could save $800 a month on your car insurance. I don't know. I've been with these people a long time. I don't like risk. 
Uh, whenever I'm making any kind of decision, I, I try to think through all of the possibilities, all the possible outcomes, and I usually will determine to act only when I have a high level of confidence that the outcome is going to be the one that I prefer. If I am not extremely confident going into something, how it's going to turn out, I will often opt against uh, whatever it is that I've been considering. I don't like risk, and so I try to minimize risk in my life as much as is humanly uh, possible. And many, perhaps most of you, are probably similarly risk-averse. You know, perhaps you have passed up an amazing career opportunity because it was going to take you to some part of the country that you were uncomfortable with, or uh, while it was tremendously, uh, uh, had potential for tremendous reward, maybe it was a little risky, and so you opted to stay in the less rewarding, but the very stable and very solid position. Uh, Perhaps your financial planning uh, gives away how risk-averse you are. You know, your money is in a shoebox under your bed instead of one of those risky CDs. (laughs) Of course, at this point, they guarantee you something like a .00002 return on your investment, so uh, pretty much the same as the shoebox. So I guess you're not so bad there. Uh, I think I'm on pretty solid ground in saying that most of us have an aversion to risk. That there are those people out there who thrive on risk, but they are a much smaller group of people than those of us who really don't like risk so much. But the problem with this is that being overly averse to risk can cause us to miss some really good opportunities in life. And being too risk averse can cause us to shrink back from doing things that God calls us to do which is what this series is about. It's about being people who are willing to take God-inspired risk. You see, the life of faith that God calls us to requires a willingness to take some risks, to, to make some decisions, and to take some actions when the outcome is in question, maybe highly questionable how things are going to turn out. To trust what you believe enough to act on it, even though you don't possess the end result of what you believe. Hebrews 11, which serves as our launching point for looking at people in the Bible who took a God-inspired risk, describes faith this way in verse 1. So if you're there at verse 7, you just look back a few verses to verse 1 and reading from the NIV. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. That is the NIV, right? Okay, I thought that was the one I used. Uh, William McNoddle notes that this isn't so much a formal definition of faith as it is a description of what faith does for us. It makes things hoped for as real as if we had them, And it provides unshakable evidence that the unseen spiritual blessings of Christianity are absolutely certain and real. In other words, it brings the future within the present and makes the invisible seen to us. 
Uh, Of course, the greatest application of this is to the promises of God to us regarding salvation and our eternal destiny. But the application extends to those things that God calls us to do in obedience to Him. Those specific tasks that God calls each of us to, those assignments that He gives us that require us to walk by faith, not by sight. Those assignments that require us to believe that something that seems impossible is actually possible because God has said it is so. In the Faith Hall of Fame that is Hebrews 11, this is what we see over and over again. People trusting God that things which seem impossible are actually achievable. And and trusting Him enough to actually take action, take risk in response to the seemingly impossible things that God has asked them to do. So one of the things that we're going to discover over and over in this series as we look at these different people, we're going to discover what the fuel is, what the fuel is that powers God-inspired risk-taking. And I would um, just submit for your consideration that there are two things that I think largely fuel God-inspired risk-taking. Here's the first, and that is a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. The the heroes of faith that we'll learn about were willing to take risk. uh, They were willing to take the risk they took because they really believed God's promises. And they really believed that God was all-powerful. They really believed that God controls the affairs of men. They really believed that the universe was created by this God and that the universe is sustained moment by moment by this God. They believed that God is in control, and so they could entrust themselves to God's plan for their life. And and so then the second thing that I think fuels God-inspired risk-taking is a firm conviction that God has called us to something. Uh, So the call of God. We'll see in this series that these heroes of faith were able to take risks because first they trusted the sovereignty of God, and then they firmly believed that God had called them to the very specific task uh, that was in front of them. And so when we believe that God is absolutely in control, and then when we believe that this God who is absolutely in control of all things has directed us to do a specific thing, then we can overcome our aversion to risk, our fear of risk, and step out in faith and do what God has put in front of us to do. So today I want to start this series by looking at the God-inspired risk taken by a man named Noah. And here's what Hebrews 11.7, if you're still holding your place there, says about Noah. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by uh, faith. Now, it's not the focus of today's message, but sometimes little things can just become a chink in our brain, and so I want to address one of those uh, before I get started. Uh, This phrase, by faith, he condemned the world. It's not really what we're going to talk about today, but I I just want to address that. This simply means that Noah's obedience to God showed 
by contrast, how sinful the world around him was in rejecting God's moral standards and in rejecting the message that God had called Noah to believe. That's all that means. So don't allow that little phrase, which struck me as odd, so I thought it might strike you as odd. Don't let that uh, hang you up. It simply means his righteousness revealed how unrighteous of the people around him uh, really were. So you find uh, the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. We're not going to go there today, but you are introduced to him in Genesis chapter 5, and then we read of Noah through chapter 9, and we read of his sons in chapters 10 and 11 uh, until they then lead us into being introduced to Abram toward the end of chapter 11. The account of Noah and the ark, which is one of the most famous stories in the Bible and what we're really going to kind of hone in on here today, runs through chapters 6 and 8. While we're not going to read it today, I would encourage you uh, to read it uh, on your own own this week. So add to that chapter in Matthew you're reading, one chapter in Genesis, and, uh, and, and read through that this week. I simply want to provide a very brief overview of some of the things that happened in these chapters, and then look at a couple things that I believe Noah was specifically called to do, some specific risk that I think Noah was called to take. About halfway through chapter 6, we are told that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked with God. We're also told in verse 11 that, quote, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God spoke to righteous Noah and told him that he was going to bring judgment on the earth, that he was going to destroy the unrighteous people of the earth, but that he was going to spare Noah and his family a righteous remnant of people. God let Noah know that the way the earth and mankind was going to be destroyed is that a flood was going to come on the earth and destroy every creature that had the breath of life. And God let Noah know that the way that he and his family would be saved is that Noah was going to build an ark, basically a ship, that would keep his family safe when the floodwaters came. God told Noah exactly how to build the ark, and verse 22 of chapter 6 says this, Noah did everything that God commanded him. I just want to stop here for a second and highlight that that should always be our response to God. That is the righteous response to God, doing everything that He commands. That's what it truly means to be submitted to the one that we call Lord, is is not picking and choosing what we will obey, but doing everything that God commands. And so the story continues that Noah did, in fact, build the ark, The flood did come. Noah and his family were safe in the ark. The flood eventually ended. Noah and his family emerged from the ark, and God instructed him and his sons and their wives to be fruitful and multiply the earth, to increase in number. And then Noah and his family, as they emerged from the ark, they worshiped God. Our emphasis for today is on Noah's obedience in building the ark as God instructed him to do. 
And I think that we need a little context to understand exactly what God was asking of Noah and exactly how risky it was for Noah to be obedient. Of course, it should be noted it was less risky to be obedient than to not be obedient. However, there were still risk involved for Noah's obedience to God. Hebrews tells us that it was by faith Noah built the ark, quote, when warned about things not yet seen. Here is one of the interesting things about God's call to Noah Uh, that that you're probably aware of, but maybe you haven't thought of. The world had never seen a flood. Some people believe that it had not even rained up to this point of human experience, based on their understanding of Genesis 2, 5, and 6. But whether that portion is true or not really isn't important. What is certain is that there had never been a flood in human experience when God called Noah to build an ark. Additionally, Noah was probably quite far from navigable waters when he started building the ark. He was probably on reasonably high ground near Mount Ararat. But God tells Noah there's going to be a flood and tells him exactly how to build the ark that will keep he and his family safe, and Noah gets to work. Never seen a flood, probably not very close to water, probably on fairly high ground, Noah starts building an ark. And you need to understand that this isn't a little, this isn't a little um, canoe that God told Noah to build. Uh, it is basically a ship. Uh, Genesis tells us that the ark was 450 feet long. That's That's long. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. This was an elaborate undertaking. It was an elaborate undertaking to prepare for something that nobody had ever seen happen. Something that had never happened. And let's acknowledge this. You know, sometimes God tells us to do things that we think are a little screwy. And so we do them kind of quietly, kind of, well, you know, I'll give some private obedience to God, but I won't tell anybody about it. Well, there's no privately obeying God when the instruction is to build something 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. I mean, you can't just say, hey, you know, I'll give this some time and and really see if God's in it. Like, you got to commit. And so Noah did that. It was a very public obedience that God required of Noah. Now, I want you to imagine what the response of the unrighteous people who saw Noah doing this actually was. Uh, Probably was. Uh, I can imagine things like this. Hey, Noah, um, what you doing there? I'm building an ark, a boat, a ship. So, Noah, um, we're pretty far from water. How are you going to get that thing to the water? Well, there's going to be a flood. Oh, a flood. Uh, no, what's, what's a flood? Well, you know, it's, water is going to start to fall from the sky, and there's going to be so much of it that eventually the water is going to get up here, and, 
Oh, oh, I see. So water's going to fall from the sky, and eventually there's going to be so much water that it's going to get up here near Mount Ararat. And then that water that's getting that high will lift your boat off of the spot that it's sitting right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's the deal. Now, Scripture doesn't specifically say this, but there is little doubt that Noah faced tremendous ridicule for his obedience to God. I mean, he probably was referred to as crazy old Noah. You you know, that's probably what happened, crazy old Noah. And I don't know what the tourism industry was like in those days, but you can imagine that there was probably a growing tourism industry to go up to crazy old Noah's place and see this monstrosity that he was building, a ship on dry ground. Got to remember, no one had ever seen a flood. Noah was asked by God to do something that went against normal reason. It went against common sense. It went against conventional wisdom. And friends, opposing conventional wisdom is a risky thing to do. It opens you up to being misunderstood. It opens you up to being considered unintelligent. It opens you up to being ridiculed. If you don't think opposing conventional wisdom is a risky thing to do, ask a researcher in the social sciences whose study has concluded that the traditional family of mom and dad married for life is the best environment for children. That was conventional wisdom not long ago. It's no longer conventional wisdom, at least within Uh, our universities. And so try being in that environment and saying, yes, my study has revealed traditional family unit is the best environment for children. You'll find out that opposing conventional wisdom is very risky. If you don't think opposing conventional wisdom is risky, try going to a church that is very dogmatic, that Christians will not even get a whiff of the tribulation They will be raptured before anything bad ever happens on earth and just suggest that you read something one time that made you think that maybe Christians might be in for some tough times before Christ returns, and you'll find out that opposing conventional wisdom is a risky thing. If you think opposing conventional wisdom is not a risky thing to do, try being a scientist that just suggests he has any remaining questions about the science behind global warming. And you will find that opposing conventional wisdom is a very risky thing to do. Noah was called by God to prepare for a flood in the midst of people who had never seen a flood did not believe there was any such thing as a flood, and likely thought that poor old Noah had lost his mind. It opened him up to being misunderstood, to being considered ignorant, to being ridiculed. And it is no fun to be misunderstood. You've noticed this. It is no fun to be viewed as being ignorant, I don't know anything about that, but uh, just, jo- just joking. 
Actually, actually, I do know about that. Uh, it is no fun to be ridiculed. None of these things are any fun. But it was a risk. It was, it was what God called Noah to do. And why was he willing to take that kind of risk? Why was he willing to endure that kind of ridicule? Because he believed that he had heard from God. He, he had been called by God to build the ark. And he believed that God was going to do, that God was able to do and would do exactly what God said he was going to do. There was going to be a flood. He believed in the sovereignty of God. So Noah was called to oppose conventional wisdom. And let's be honest here, the conventional wisdom was compelling because there had never been a flood. And so in light of, in light of that, Noah is being called by God to act against all odds. If something has never happened, the odds are pretty good. It's not going to happen. You're not going to put your money down on something happening that's never happened before. And yet God told Noah it was going to happen, called Noah to not only believe that it would happen, but to believe it to the point that he would actually take action based on the belief. And all through the Bible, God asked people to believe these kinds of things, things that seem to be impossible, and to act on these kind of things. He, he asked Moa, uh, Moses, Moa, uh, he asked Moses, uh, <laughs> the brain gets ahead of the mouth sometimes, uh, he asked Moses to believe that he'd part the Red Sea if Moses would lift up his hand and stretch out a rod over the sea. He asked Abraham and Sarah to believe that they could have children even though they were well past childbearing age. He, he asked Gideon to believe that his horribly outnumbered army could defeat a large skilled army this way, blowing horns and smashing jars. He asked Joshua and the children of Israel to believe that impregnable walls would fall if they would march around them blow trumpets, and shout real loud. Anybody want to try it? <laughs> God asked Noah to take a risk, to, to act on something that the odds seemed heavily stacked against ever actually happening. Asked to build an ark to save yourself from a flood when a flood had never happened in all of human experience. And the work of building the ark was difficult. There is no doubt he was scorned for doing it. So he believed God. He knew a flood was coming because he believed God. But he did not know it in the same way he would know it when the rain started to fall. He did not know it in the same way he'd know it when the waters actually started to lift the boat. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Sometimes to fulfill God's purpose in our lives, to fulfill the plan that God has for us, we have to be willing to risk acting against the odds. 
We believe God has told us what He's going to do, but it hasn't happened yet. And it may seem like something that's very unlikely to happen, but to do God's will. We have to act against the odds. We have to act based on God's call, not on the physical evidence that we have up to that point. Noah was willing to do this because he believed God had called him, and he believed that God would do what he said he would do. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. Opposing conventional wisdom, acting against all odds, these are risky things that the call of God requires of the people of God even to this very day. The end result of Noah's obedience was that the flood did come. Noah and his family were saved, preserving a righteous remnant of people for the glory of God. Noah knew it by faith before it ever happened, but he had to act in advance to experience the reality of what God had promised. So here's where this leads us today. There is something about the call of God on each of our lives that requires us to take some risk. How are you being called to risk like Noah? What is the conventional wisdom that you're called to oppose? Maybe you're a teenager, a college student, a single person of any age. And the conventional wisdom of the time that we live in is that nobody really limits their sexuality to the covenant of marriage. I mean, when, when I was uh, a teenager, I, I had friends who would wear t-shirts that would say things like, I'm not doing it. And then I found out a few years later, actually they were while they wore the t-shirt. Conventional wisdom tells us nobody actually lives up to that anymore. And so maybe you are being called by God to oppose conventional wisdom. Let me say it this way. If you're single, you are being called by God to oppose conventional wisdom. He's calling you to oppose that conventional wisdom, even if someone considers you prudish or old-fashioned, even if a friend makes fun of you. He's calling you to oppose it, even if it means that you might have to end a relationship because somebody that you really like doesn't share your commitment to the Lord, and they're trying to take your relationship somewhere that you know God is not pleased with that you know is to be kept for when you're married. So you say, no, I I have to step up here. There's risk involved. I might be made fun of. I might lose a relationship, but I have to take this risk. I have to oppose this conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom of our day says that the greatest priority in any of our lives is personal happiness and fulfillment. And that anything that impedes our personal happiness and fulfillment must be rid of from our lives. And so if your marriage is difficult, conventional wisdom says, if it doesn't get turned around pretty quickly, pretty quickly, to be true to yourself, 
You need to end it. God's calling you, if you're married, to oppose that conventional wisdom. There's risk. There's risk. Your marriage might be a continual uh, challenge to your personal happiness. Sorry. God still calls you to be faithful. God calls you to continue to work at it until it is restored to what He wants it to be. And if that takes a long time, He says keep doing it because this conventional wisdom is wrong. It's displeasing to me. Conventional wisdom says that the worst thing a person can possibly do is make a moral judgment about another person. And increasingly, this conventional wisdom is being walked out even in our churches that are accepting things in the name of tolerance that the Bible says ought not be accepted. And so you, Christian, are called to oppose this kind of conventional wisdom. Even if it means being seen as out of date, unintelligent, bigoted, narrow-minded, or, Lord forbid, intolerant. You might be called to stand against this conventional wisdom in your own family. Doing so comes with risk. Family strife. You might be on the receiving end of someone else's anger. But you know that God is calling you to lovingly, respectfully, but boldly oppose, stand against conventional wisdom that is wrong. Conventional wisdom irrationally says that all faiths are equally, all faiths are equally valid and, and that all faiths lead to the same place. And there is tremendous pressure to accept this conventional wisdom in our culture, to, to yield to this conventional wisdom. And there is great risk that comes with not yielding to it. But God calls us to stand against this kind of conventional wisdom. And he may be calling someone here today to take some specific stand against this conventional wisdom. It might be speaking up in a, in a debate in a college class. It might be sharing a truth with a parent. It might be engaging a child that is influenced by this conventional wisdom. And here's one. It might be submitting your own heart to the clear teaching of the Bible, even though you find a lot appealing about this particular conventional wisdom. You say, you know, I find that very attractive. Left to myself, I, I would agree with that. But Christians, we aren't left to ourselves. God's Word guides us. And, and when we bump up against the Bible, if what I think bumps up against what the Bible says, then what is, my, what is my role? My role is to submit. My role is to yield. And so I can say on the one hand, boy, that's very attractive. But on the other hand, but it's not right. So it can be as attractive as it wants to be. I'm going to yield to what God says in His Word. So I ask you to ask what conventional wisdom God's calling you to oppose. And also to ask yourself how God might be calling you to act against the odds. What's the thing that you believe God has spoken to you that is just too big? It, it seems too unrealistic. 
You, you've believed that God spoke to you, but it, it seems the odds are so stacked against it that you can't really entertain that, that God wants you to actually do something. And so you, you wrestle with it a little bit. You kind of, you, you kind of, yeah, I'll think about that a little bit. But God wants you to act on it. What is that for you? You know, maybe God has called you to pray for someone's healing. Or maybe he has called you to trust for your own healing. But you say, I've never witnessed a healing that I think was truly supernatural. There was always a natural explanation for it. And so, and so you're struggling to have faith for what God's called you to. There's risk attached to it. You're afraid of being disappointed if it doesn't turn out as you hope, but, but maybe God's calling you to act against the odds to begin to pray for something that you think is too big. Maybe you sense that God has called you to be a long-term missionary, but the thought of this is just too daunting. You, you think of the logistics of selling your house and raising support and the anxiety of leaving your good-paying job and all of that is just combined to make you feel like, no, this is too much, this is too hard, this is too big. Maybe you've been praying for the salvation of a loved one for years and years, and you've been, uh, become discouraged because they've not received Christ. And in spite of your years of prayer, they remain just committed against uh, faith, and so you have come to believe that the odds are just too great. You sense God calling you to pray for them again. You, you may sen even sense God calling you to talk to them again, but you're hesitant because it seems so unlikely. God may be calling you to take that risk. You've been to marriage counseling repeatedly. Every few years, we go through a new round of counseling, you say. It's never done anything. The marriage isn't working. It's not worked for so long that you think the odds are completely stacked against it ever being able to work again, but you sense that God is calling you to give it another try, to act against what history tells you is going to be the outcome. Will you do it? You feel called to plant a church. You can't imagine how that would come about. You're fearful that maybe you heard God incorrectly. You know the place that you feel like God has deposited uh, in your heart, that, that place that He's given you a burden for. You know that it would not be easy there. That ministry in that place might be really difficult. You feel as though the odds are stacked against it ever becoming a reality, but perhaps God is calling you today to begin to take actions that are contrary to what you see naturally, to take actions that are against the odds. These are just a few examples. Some of them may apply to people here today, but the, the real question is, what is it that God is speaking to you? There is some conventional wisdom that God is causing you to oppose. What is it for you? There is some action that God is asking you to take that's against the odds. What is that for you? You can do what God is asking of you just like Noah did. You can do it if you allow yourself to trust in the sovereignty of God. And you can do it as you allow yourself 
to become convinced, to become persuaded that God really has called you to. You can do that by the, the witness of the Spirit that you can feel in your own heart. You can do that by inviting the, the prayerful counsel of others around you. You can, you can determine if God really is calling you just by some circumstantial things that God allows to happen in your life, some, some encouragement somebody gives you. They have no idea that you're considering this, but they give you an encouragement that you know has a connection to it. There are many ways that God can confirm to you how he's calling you, but if you will trust in the sovereignty of God, and if you can be firmly convinced that God has called you, then you can, by faith, do what God is asking you to do. It's going to remain risky. But God calls us to take risks in cooperating with fulfilling his mission on the earth. And he calls us to take risk to see his will played out in our lives. Why don't you stand?